Um, I'll just say one or two brief things before, before, because, uh, before I speak, and some of, some of my reflections, I think, will come out in, in my talk. But um, one of the reasons I, I, went, I went to the States was, was, a, was the recognition that, that, that the type of church that, that we're building in Brixton, almost like whether we want to or not, is going to be diverse in many, many different ways. It's going to be diverse in terms of ethnically, it's going to be diverse in terms of people from different educational backgrounds, it's going to be diverse in terms of um, uh, different levels of brokenness and open brokenness. And, and, um, and we already touch a lot of, in some ways, more overt brokenness in terms of uh, people maybe who've struggled with different addictions or have spent time in prison or come out of just difficult backgrounds. And one of the reasons for going was just to see, so how do you do church like that? Because I know that the, now you could tell, well, there are loads of churches here that do that. I know and have read about the Brooklyn Tabernacle, and I know that one of the things that they do because of the type of church they are is they pray lots. That's one of the things that it's obvious that they do. And so I went there partly to look at that. And it was interesting. We met with one of the pastors there, a guy called Brian Petrie, who uh, he's married to the guy who leads the church is a guy called Jim Simbala, who's written a number of books, and 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 Brian is married to one of his daughters, and he's on the staff there, and and we were waiting for him actually. We were we were due to meet him at twelve, and probably by the time we got in there, it was about half twelve, simply because he he had a pastoral, he, he was counselling someone. He was in a pastoral meeting at that moment, and. Um, uh, when he when we went into his room and we, and I said I sort of said what I just said now this is why one of the reasons why we've come out here he said ah um, he said I love where you meet brokenness in people because that's where you meet the heart of God that was the first thing he said to us the first thing he said was is it's brokenness that brings a, brings the heart of God and then he just gave a little bit of background to the to the situation he had been in two minutes before which was not unusual in his situation. So the situation he talked about right there and then was uh, he was meeting with somebody who had been sexually abused by her grandfather and physically abused by her dad and so felt worthless. That's really the long and short of it. And I was like, whoa, you know, and, that's, and, it, and it wasn't. It was not unusual. He wasn't trying to be dramatic. He was saying, oh, this is just what I've dealt with today. Um, and... What was encouraging about that was how, how much it was obvious that, that Brian didn't feel that his counseling skills helped. What he kept bringing people back to was the truth about Jesus. And that was all that he really did. He, he wasn't that, I don't think he'd have described himself as a great counselor. He, what he said, and, and, he, and he wasn't trying to exaggerate, he said, I've probably counseled here around 5,000 people since I've been at this church. Now, the church is regularly gets 10,000 people. So I've probably counseled about 5,000 people. Um, and, and some of his responses are the same. It's, it's about the truth. And the other thing he said, which was really interesting and I found really helpful, he talked about the ability to help people is dependent on how willing they are to surrender. Your willingness to surrender is, 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 the, is the benchmark as to how much God can really do in you. So if you're not willing to surrender to him, he can't really do much in you. And I just thought, oh, that, again, that was really helpful because 
sometimes you can meet people time and time and time again and you find, oh, the bottom line is, is they're not willing to surrender. They're willing to talk, talk about their stuff. They all even want you to pray, but they're not coming thirsty. They're not coming hungry. They're not coming, what do I need to do to be saved? What do I need to do to be changed? And the passage I'm going to talk about in a moment sort of looks at that. So, so I found that really helpful. I then found, the other thing I found helpful, which was related to that, was I visited um, uh, the Brooklyn Teen Challenge. And uh, Peter and I were meant to go on the Saturday because they run something like a food bank there. Um, but, but the Friday there had been a blizzard. And so on the Saturday, um, lots of things were closed. Um, it was quite funny, really, because I thought that in New York, they had loads of very public-spirited people who were clearing all the pathways. Yeah? So, so the roads, they didn't grit, but the paths were being cleared. And I was like, man, there's guys out and women out, they're just clearing the pathway. I thought, that's like really public-spirited. And then my aunt said to me, my aunt and my cousin said to me, oh, no, 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 if somebody slips outside your house, that's your problem, yeah? Your insurance, you have to do it. And I was like, oh, man, I was thinking people are so generous and this guy's clearing out. You know, they're all out there. And, and she said, no, 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 no. I said, she said, you know, if you slip, someone slips outside your house and damages themselves, you're going to be sued. I was like, oh, okay, okay. Yeah, because I was thinking, why aren't we so public spirited? Sometimes you need the whole story, don't you? Because otherwise you can make some assumptions. So, um, but I went to the Brooklyn Teen Challenge on, on the Tuesday morning and it's called the Brooklyn Teen Challenge, but in truth, it doesn't really work with teenagers anymore. It used to. The Brooklyn Teen Challenge was started by David Wilkerson, who wrote the book, The Cross and the Switchblade. Um, they describe themselves, this is their description, not mine, they describe themselves as um, the most effective um, uh, sort of rehabilitation, um, sort of faith-based rehabilitation program in the world, that's, that's how they describe themselves. Now, I mean, I couldn't judge that. I, I just could only see what I saw. But, but they've got hundreds of sites all over the world, in, including here in London. But, but I went there, and what was encouraging there was they, I happened to go on a day when it was their chapel service. So they were, they were meeting, really, and they were just have a, having a meeting. They were breaking bread together, worshipping, and somebody was speaking. And there must have been about 50 people in the room, 90% of whom were... Um, ex-addicts, prostitutes, offenders, those types of people. And to be amongst those types of people and, and to witness, I suppose, they would sing very similar songs to us, but the rawness of their worship, the gratefulness to God. So when they sang about everyone needs compassion, you know, the, the kindness of it. For them, that was massive, the kindness of a saviour. When, when you've been broken... You really, and you, and you find Jesus, you realize, oh, the kindness of a savior. For them, it was massive. And you could tell that even as they worshipped. It was loud. It was quite raucous and raw. Um, um, but it was, it was, the presence of God was there. And it just gave me hope because, I know this might sound like silly to you. It gave me hope because I realized, ah, people who are in very broken situations can come through to meet Jesus. And Jesus was the answer to that situation. It really was the case. It wasn't the case that, oh, well, you know, we've done the 12 steps program and now we've come to church. Actually, it was the gospel that was changing them. It wasn't anything else. And that gave me hope because I just thought, oh, it, 
all, all we have is the gospel. We don't have experience. We don't have, we, don't have any, we don't have anything else. We have the gospel. When David Wilkerson first went to New York, he went with the gospel. He didn't go with much else. And so I was encouraged by that. And, and, and what that led, and I'm, I'm just going to go into my talk now, what that led me to was, was um, just to pray lots. Yeah, so Pete went on the Monday morning uh, about 6 a.m., I got up not long after that, and I probably then went into my normal routine, which is, I'm, you know, I've got my YouTube playlists. Um, I put one of those on, and I'm worshipping, and I'm praying for most of that day, uh, just really seeking God, seeking God. Because I realized, God, it would be very easy to come back with some sort of formula program thing, and I, don't, I, don't, I really don't want that. I, I really just want you to, to, to manifest yourself where we are. That's, that's really what I want. Um, and that you would heal the same sort of brokenness that I'm seeing here, but you would also heal the brokenness that's in us often, which is the hidden brokenness. It's not always so obvious. Okay, so we're taking a break from Genesis, and we're going to look at uh, a particular story in Mark. It's the, so if you've got a Bible, it's Mark chapter 5, um, verse 21 to 43. Three or 44, I can't remember. Um, again, this passage has come back to me again and again since the end of last year and on a number of different occasions. And uh, I've got a couple of people who are just going to come and read it. So uh, where's Donovan and Becky? Do you know, come out. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came in there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman there was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in in the crowd and asked, "Who touched my clothes?" You see the people crowding around. You see the people crowding against you. His disciples answered, and yet you ask, "Who touched me?" But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, "Daughter, your father, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering." While Jesus was still speaking. Some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? 
The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Father, we, um, I ask that just in these few moments you would, you would speak to us. I, I pray for inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I pray also, God, you would fill us with a desire to, to be like that woman and to be like that synagogue ruler who uh, pushed through what would have been their comfort zones, their issues, in order to touch Jesus, in order to reach him. And so I, I pray, Father, this morning that some of us will push through our comfort zones and our issues in order to touch you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So these two stories are really the uh, two sides of the, of the same coin. Initially, I was just going to talk about the woman, but then I realised... Um, that's only in half the story, really, and it would have been like flicking the coin and coming down on heads. And so I just thought, no, let's try and, try and look uh, quickly at, at both of those. You see, it talks about two really big issues, death and sickness. And uh, death is there for all of us. We're all going to die uh, at some point, someday. And the truth is, many of us will get sick or will know somebody who gets sick. And uh, it might even be in this room now that you are sick. Uh, none of us are dead. Um, you might, you know, <laughs> even though you look sleepy, you're not dead. Um, not yet, anyway. Um, uh, but but some, of, you know, some of us are sick. Um, and some of us um, are, are spiritually dead. Yeah? Some of us, we're not, we're not spiritually alive. And so this, this passage talks about those two things which are quite quite major things for us. And I just want to make some observations around this passage. The, the first thing I just want to make an observation on is the crowds. Because again, we've got a little bit of a crowd here. And around Jesus, you had a crowd. And I, I've talked about this before in relation to the woman. The woman reaches out and touches the cloak of Jesus. And he realizes power has gone from him, though he's crowded by lots of people, yet no power has gone. No power had gone. You see, because, because people, it's possible to crowd around Jesus and not even realise that you're in the presence of God. You're not in the, you don't realise you're in the presence of the supernatural. You don't realise that you're in the presence of someone who can change your life forever. You don't realise that. And you can just be in the crowd. And, and in the crowd, there are going to be uh, people who are just saying, what's going on? I just, just want to have a look. In the crowd, there are going to be people just interested in, oh, will I see a miracle? I've heard about this Jesus. I'm not interested in it, but will I see a miracle? You might even have in the crowd people who are just trying to make their way through the crowd, and the crowd is just an inconvenience to them. They're not interested in Jesus. Do you know what? I'm a bit like this. If I was walking down to Brixton and I saw a big crowd, I'd probably go around another way. Yeah? 
because I'm just like, oh man, I can't be doing with all that. You know, Paulie's always having a go at me. All the back doubles I do when I'm driving because I want to avoid the jam. Yeah, I don't, I don't like the jam. So I'm like, okay, oh, okay, so no through road. But I'll know that for next time. And I'm always, I do that all the time because I want to avoid the crowd. I want to avoid the, 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 the thing. And you're going to have people in the crowd that don't want to be in the crowd. Yeah? And, and the crowd is not that dissimilar to, to the crowd here. You, we've all come to church. Yeah? And so there must be something's brought you to church today. Now, probably if you're, and she's going to kill me, but if, if I talk about Daisy for a moment, yeah, my daughter Daisy, and she'll kill me when we get home, but I, I will, I'll, I'll live that there. Yeah? Daisy doesn't always get up on a Sunday and go, yes, church. Yeah? There's a little bit where it's, yeah, okay, we're going to church. Mum and dad, me, we're going to church. And so, and so for some of us, we can come to church and we can just feel a little bit, you know, oh, well, I've just come to church. Oh, if I don't go, this will happen. If I don't go, I feel bad. If I don't go, whatever. So you come to church like that. And you don't realise that, oh, do you know what? When you come to church, there's an opportunity and a possibility that you're going to meet the supernatural there. That you're going to meet the God that can change you. You're going to meet the God that can transform your life. You, we don't always think about it like that. Some people are part of the crowd and they get nothing from Jesus. Nothing. Secondly, you've got um, the, this interesting, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about both. You've got the diversity of having Jairus, the synagogue ruler, and this woman. And you've got some differences between them. First of all, you've got, you've, you've got, uh, you've, you've got a male and, and in that world, being male was, was, was more important than being female. And not only was he a male, he was a synagogue ruler. So he would have had influence. He would have had people that come to him. He would have been served. He would have been respected. He would have been looked up to as somebody of importance in the community. Whereas the woman was an outcast in the community. There's no evidence that she had children, so she may have been a single woman, and one of the reasons for that might have been the fact that she had this problem, this constant bleeding. And the fact that she had that bleeding would have made her an outcast. And also you read in the passage that because of the amount of, uh, the amount of time she had tried to work through getting healthy, she'd spent all her money, so her, her health issue had made her poor. Imagine that. Some people give up what they've got. They become poor because they, they seek to pursue something that they think is going to get them better and actually it makes them poor. And that's what happened to her. There's other differences between them, though, which I think are quite significant. Jairus comes on behalf of somebody else. Now, it's somebody very close to him. It's his daughter. But he's not coming for himself. The woman comes because she has a need. Yeah? And sometimes we miss the fact that sometimes you read in you read in the scriptures, people brought their friends to Jesus. People came to Jesus on behalf of somebody else. It's not always, oh, it's, a, it's about me, I've got a desperate need. We all have needs, but sometimes the most pressing need in my head is not my need, it's this need. It might be a member of my family. It might be a friend that I've got. 
And it might be that they're physically ill, but it might be that they're spiritually dead. Or they're going in a way of life that you don't, that, that you don't, that you're worried about. And you know what? Most of the time you pray, you're praying about them. You're not praying about you. Sometimes you come with someone else's need, not your own. And that was Jairus. But there are some things that are common about Jairus and the woman. Although they were very, very different, what brings them together is this. They both had needs that they couldn't meet, which must have been very, very humbling for him, more than for her. Because he was a resourceful man. He was an influential man. He was probably a wealthy man. He was somebody that people looked up to. And yet he had a need that he could not meet. He was a synagogue ruler. He probably didn't like Jesus. Yeah? The synagogue wasn't, Jesus wasn't very complimentary to the synagogue rulers. Maybe he and Jairus had clashed before this moment. Who knows? But they had needs that they couldn't meet. Those needs had caused them to take desperate action. And the action that they've taken is desperate. There's no way that the synagogue ruler, if it was not desperate, would publicly go to Jesus and say to him, come and pray for my daughter, she's dying. There's no way, if it wasn't desperate, would he do that. He was, he was a proud man. They were, you, you know that. He's a proud man. There's no way he's just out of, out of a whim going to say, oh, Jesus is walking past, I'll just ask what, his opinion. No, he was desperate. And his desperation led him to action. And it's exactly the same for the woman. There is no way that she would have risked public humiliation by coming to Jesus. But she's desperate. She's got a need that she can't meet. And again, the interesting thing that's common about both of them is their focus for the answer to their need was Jesus. It was Jesus. It wasn't, it wasn't his teaching. It wasn't his disciples. It wasn't just to be part of the crowd and let's just get the vibe. It wasn't the vibe. It was Jesus. And both of them talk about it in the same way. The synagogue ruler says, come and, t you know, if you can just touch her. He talks about touching his daughter. And the woman says, if I can just touch his clothes. If I can just touch his clothes. It's interesting, I don't know whether there's um, anything significant in it. She suffered for 12 years. So for 12 years she lived as an outcast. How many of those years was she poor because she'd spent all her money? Was she just living on her own, struggling? And his daughter was 12 years old. We don't know whether there was any significance there. We don't know how long she had been ill for. But, for a, but he had maybe enjoyed his daughter for 12 years and then she had become sick. This woman had struggled for 12 years. 12 years. That's a long time. It's a long time to, to be struggling with the same illness. Jairus and the woman represented extremes. They represented what you might call the bookends. Yeah, the bookends of diversities. You've, you've got a man who is religious and upstanding and you've got a woman who's an outcast. The bookends and they both find that they have a need and the only person that they can find to meet that need is Jesus. Now that's encouraging for us because what it tells us is that Jesus can meet all our needs. Yeah? There is not a person out there 
whether they be in a £5 million house around the corner or whether they live in the top flat of the estate in Tulse Hill up the road, there's nobody out there that Jesus cannot meet their need. And passages like this tell us that. Passages like this remind us, oh, there is hope for everyone. There is hope for everyone. There comes a point for everyone where they get to the stage where, do you know what, I have a need. This is why it was really helpful for me when I, when I spoke to that pastor. When people are desperate, when people are surrendered, they'll come. And Jesus can meet their need. But if you're not desperate, if you're not surrendered, if not really, sometimes Jesus doesn't meet our needs because we don't really want him to meet our needs. We're not desperate enough. We're not surrendered enough. We've not given it to him. We're like, oh, it would be really helpful if this happened because then this part of my life would work a little bit better if, if that was... No, they were desperate. And they came to him. You see, the truth is that the other thing about it is, and again, it's, it's, it's one of the things that sets Jesus apart, is the synagogue ruler, no matter how clever he was, no matter how resourceful he was, he couldn't cheat death. He could, he could, no matter how, how much he had, how much money he had, how much status he had, how much influence he had, how high his reputation was, he couldn't cheat death. He couldn't save his daughter from dying. He needed help for that. And we already know that the woman spent everything she had to try and come away from that sickness, and she was unable to do. And it's, re- it's really simple for us, isn't it? Some of us, I mean, I don't know how many, whether anyone here has actually physically died, terminally ill. I remember when my mum was terminally ill. That's a really, that's an, that's a really strange feeling when, when, when you've been given the words, oh, your, your mum or your sister or whoever it is, they're going to die. They're going to die. The illness is terminal. Left to its own devices, this will end in death. When you're told that, And I remember in my spirit, this was just me personally, thinking, do you know what, that's what's going to happen? My mum's going to die. And I don't know whether that was uh, purely a lack of faith, but that was my my sense in my spirit. And I realised that there's nothing I can do about that. We can do what we can for the moments that she's left, but there's nothing we can do about that. And sometimes when you're physically ill and you realise, do you know what, There's, there's nothing I can do. I've been to the doctor's. I've spent loads of money. There's nothing I can do. I'm sick. The only thing we can do, and this is where the wonderful news of the gospel comes, is that Jesus overcame sin, but he also overcame death. Jesus has the power to set you free from sickness. Now, you know that, and I know that. Now, we don't always experience that, but we know that to be true because we come to the scriptures and we realise Jesus was doing that all the time. And so some of us here are sick, physically sick. And one of the ways we respond to our physical sickness is we simply say, God, give me the grace to cope. The grace to cope with this. Yeah? And sometimes God, that's what God wants to do. He'll give you the grace to cope. But you know what? There are other times when God wants to heal you. He wants to set you free from your sickness. And so there'll be an opportunity in a moment just for us to pray. And, and for some of us, as I said, none of us are physically dead, but some of us, we know that we're, we're spiritually dead or, or very least we're spiritually dry. We're dry. 
you can do all the externals. You can sing the songs. You can be polite. You can be happy. But you know in your heart you're spiritually dry. You're far from God. You're not surrendered. Or it may be that you've got a friend and you think, do you know what, the way they're going in life, I'm worried. I'm concerned about them. I'm worried about them. What can I do? Well, do you know what? You can bring them to Jesus. If you're spiritually dead, dry, you can come to Jesus. Because in Jesus, there is new life. You see, Jesus was a transformer. This is what it said in one of the commentaries that I read this week. The thing about Jesus was he was never an observer, but always a transformer in situations. As he moves about, he leaves behind a trail of transformed scenes and changed situations. Fishermen no longer at their nets. Sick people restored to health. Critics confounded. A storm stilled. Hunger assaged. A dead girl raised to life. Jesus' presence is an active and instantly transforming presence. He is never a mere observer of the scene or the one who waits upon events, but always the transformer of the scene and the initiator of events. People sometimes talk about, you know, if, if the church disappeared from your community, would anyone know? And that, you know, it can be like a challenging question. And, and often you can answer that question, oh yeah, if we disappeared, we're doing all this stuff. Doing food bank, we're doing youth, we're doing stuff, people would miss us. But you know what? If they don't miss the transforming presence of Jesus, do they really miss you? If they don't miss the thing that changes them from the inside out, not the thing that sort of helps them along the way. It's great to do a you thing, but the you thing is only really helpful if in the end it saves some from a life of hopelessness and brings them into a life of hopefulness in Jesus. That's the, that's the thing that really counts. The thing that really counts is not the fact that we might, oh, well, I kept them from the straight and narrow by, by just showing them a few things and I got them interested in boxing or whatever it is. No. The thing that changes people is when they meet Jesus because he transforms them. It's not when they meet me or you. It's not when they come to church. It's when those things you, me, church, are used and designed in order to bring people to Jesus. That's, that's why we're here. You're not here because there's any magic here. There's no magic in me. There's no magic in us coming together. The magic comes, if I can use that term guardedly, is when we can present people Jesus. Because he's the one that transforms. He's the one that changes. So God has called us and this was in the back of my mind a little bit while I was away, I was reminded of it again and again, to be a community of transformation, a transformed community. You'll remember that God spoke to us through that passage in Isaiah. I'll just read it quickly. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for, for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord 
for the display of his splendour. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Part of the unique call of Beacon is to be a transformed community. Nobody should come into the presence of Beacon and come into the community of Beacon and one day move on from the community of Beacon and not find that their lives have been transformed. Not find that, that oh, wow, well, I went through that place. Yeah, it challenged me in lots of things, but do you know what? I've come out the other side and for whatever reason, I'm, I'm, just, I'm pursuing Jesus more. I'm loving Jesus more. I'm surrendered to Jesus more. Or people who've, who've come and said, you know what? I never was really surrendered to Jesus. And, and I joined that, that, that community, and you know what? That, that, that was the challenge all the time. Are you surrendered? Is your heart for him? It doesn't matter what it looks like. The externals are not important. And, and maybe, I, uh, you know, sometimes I wish I was more bothered by externals, but I'm not very bothered by externals in that sense. What I am bothered by is the heart. It's the heart. Have I got a heart after God? Because I can pretend. I can sing songs. I remember talking to a girl, a teenage girl. She said, I can do hill songs. I can do hill songs. I thought, oh, right. I didn't realize this was hill songs. Yeah? I thought there were moments when you did this because you were so overwhelmed by the love of God that you raised your hands in worship and you didn't care what other people thought rather than, oh, this is hill songs. Yeah? It's the heart. You can do all sorts of things and it can look great. But do you know what? In the end, God sees your heart. You can fool all the people all of the time if you want. But you can't, you can't fool him. You know that. You can't fool him. So we are to be a community that transforms. And, and already I would say that there would be testimonies. Okay, we don't, we don't share them. Maybe we need to find a way of doing that. Of people who came here, have come here, and they have found restoration of their own hearts. Maybe they've come broken. Maybe they've come grieving. Maybe they've come captive. And actually what's happened over time is that God has restored them. He's restored their hearts. He's changed their hearts. He's worked on their hearts. And then what he does is he gives you an identity. He gives you your identity back. He he calls you an oak of righteousness. And you move from someone who required restoration to being somebody who can bring restoration to others. That's what he calls us to do. Part of, that's part of the unique call of Beacon. But today, I just want to talk about the woman, Jairus, and the crowd. And we're going to respond. You see, some of us, it's really simple, some of us are like the crowd. Let's be honest. Some of us, we're in that place where it's like, what time's it over? What am I going to do for lunch now? Oh, I'm going to see Sarah's. Oh, that'll be fun. That's where some of us are at. Yeah? So you're bumping into the supernatural. Maybe you were pressing right against Jesus' garment. Maybe you could smell his breath. You were right next to him. Oh, I'm right next to Jesus. But actually, you didn't realize that you were next to the supernatural. You didn't realize you were next to God. Some of us are like the crowd. We just want to get through. It's inconvenient. Others of us were like the woman. We're desperate. We might not always externalise it, but we're desperate. We're desperate for a healing. We're desperate for a touch. 
We're, we're desperate to know him. We're desperate to experience him. Some of us are desperate. And what the woman did when she was desperate was she reached out and she said, if only I just touch him. Why? Because faith isn't in the externals. Faith isn't in, oh, how are they going to set up the response that makes me feel comfortable? Faith is in the Jesus that you're coming to. It's not in anything that we can present. And then others of us are like Jairus. We're like the synagogue ruler. Do you know what? And the synagogue ruler, he's got it made. Yeah, he's resourceful. He's influential. He's probably wealthy. He clearly had a family that he loved. He's got a daughter that he probably adored. And yet there comes a moment in his life where there's a need that he cannot meet. And so that humbles him. And it humbles him enough to go to the very man that he probably was criticising earlier. That he probably was confronting. That he did not believe in. And it's interesting Jesus' response. Jesus doesn't say to him, told you, Jairus. Jesus doesn't look at him and say, I knew. Yeah? You see, Jesus is too grace-filled for that. Jesus says to him, don't doubt, only believe. Because what he does is he can't help but respond to faith. It doesn't matter whether the faith is in what appears to be the most doubting person. Jesus responds to faith. It's all about faith. Do do I trust him? Do I believe in him? Then you've got those two miracles. One is immediate. The woman touches his cloak and immediately she feels, whoa, I've been healed. She knew. And you know what? She knew when she touched him that was what was going to happen. That's why she was reaching out. She knew. She'd heard enough about him. She knew enough about him to know, if I can just touch his cloak, I will be healed. She knew that. So she experienced that immediate healing. And then you've got Jairus, and, and, and his healing, it's not far away, but it's far enough away for maybe for, for him to possibly doubt now. I've come to Jesus. I've, I've opened myself up. I've, I've said, Jesus, I need your help. And now, and now he's been distracted. And now they're coming to tell me my daughter's dead. Yeah, so, he, so the possibility for doubt is high at that moment. We don't even know whether they ever come to faith in Jesus. But we do know that there's this moment where there's a possibility of doubt for Jairus. And Jesus says, don't doubt, just believe. Just believe. And then he receives his healing. We're, all of us, sit in one of those places this morning. You're either like Jairus, and you're, you're, you're coming in your heart, the big thing in your head is, is the healing, the breakthrough, the, the, um, the, the touch of God on somebody else. Yeah? And you're like, yeah, I know I need stuff, but you know what? Whenever I think about it, it's, that's the person. I'm praying for my wife here. I'm praying for my husband. I'm praying for my brother, my sister, my friend at work. That's where I'm praying. They're making wrong decisions. I'm praying. They're spiritually dead. They're spiritually dying. I'm praying for... That's the prayer. For some of us, that's why you're coming. And the desperation for that can be as deep as the desperation for yourself. Jairus exposed himself. He humiliated himself for his daughter. But others of us were the woman. 
Don't be polite and pretend that, oh, I just, you know, I'm praying for other people. No, you're the woman. You need a touch. You need the Holy Spirit. And, and I don't stand here as, um, as you know, I don't stand here as Mr. Magic Man. I stand here realising that, oh, it's faith that counts. Yeah? I go to the States and what do I come back with? Oh, it's faith that counts. Yeah? It's the truth that counts. So we come to the truth. So what we're going to do, um, we've just got a song we're going to play in response. And uh, we've got space here in the middle. Um, and we're not, I'm asking you to sing it. I'm just asking us to sort of maybe, maybe listen. But there's space here in the middle that, that if you need to respond. Now, probably you're not going to come if you're in the crowd. Now, please, please don't feel, oh, no, he's made me feel good. If you don't want to come, you don't have to come. But there is space here in the middle that I want you to just to come. And it may be that, that, that people can come and pray for you. But do you know the person you're really after? It's Jesus. It's not your pastor. It's, it's not the person that's not, oh, that's a spiritual person. It's Jesus you're after. That's who you're coming to. So I'm just going to, we're going to have this space. We're going to put this song on, have this space. And I just want you to come out. Yeah, and it will be good. Maybe people come and pray for you. But... Really, you're coming, you're praying yourself. Maybe you're kneeling, maybe you're sitting, maybe you're standing. But you are seeking God. You're either seeking him on behalf of another. Oh, God, would you heal that person? Or you're seeking him on your own behalf. You're either Jairus or you're the woman. Yeah? Your need is either your own or your need is for another. Okay, can we put that?